You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church of Savannah. If you would like to find out more information about our church, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. All right, you can have a seat. Good morning again. I hope you're doing well. Uh, my name is Clint. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at the church. And if you're wondering if I sound like this normally or if it's the microphone or if there's something else going on, the answer is there's something else going on. Uh, typically what happens when I travel to different climates for whatever reason is the allergens in that area attack my face. And so that's what we're dealing with here. Um, so I'm on a, a nice cocktail of, you know, all the different things that you need um, and then just finished the cough drop, timed it perfectly as I walked up, it dissolved to the end. So that's good. Um, that's a good sign, I think, for the sermon as we move forward. Um, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Colossians chapter two. That's where we're gonna be this morning. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read that for us here in a second. If you've been a part of our church for any period of time, you know that most Sundays we spend, um, we're in a series, kind of a sermon series. So an individual sermon that fits into a larger part. And so most of the time, how that works is we preach through books of the Bible. Typically, Bill, our lead pastor, will kind of preach through books of the Bible. Um, other times, we, we do topical sermon series. So we, there's a specific topic periodically that are so important um, for uh, our church and for the people of God that we spend, it's, or we think it's helpful for us to spend some time addressing that topic biblically again, because of the weight that it carries for us and the people of God. Um, if you're part of our church, you know two weeks ago, we just finished a sermon series like that. And then next Sunday, we're actually gonna start our Advent series. And I tell you that to say that we're right in between those two. So we've had these two Sundays that kind of sandwich sandwich, sandwich <laughs> the Thanksgiving holiday. And so we have an opportunity to kind of dig in um, there. And as a pastor, you get a unique opportunity when you have an open week that you don't get in a series. And it's much more difficult because you, you really have to pray and ask the Lord and say, God, what do you want to say to your people through me? So in a series, it's pretty easy. You go, I have this passage of scripture and I ask, what, God, what are you saying through this passage? But when you're, the, the Bible is just completely open to going, God, where do you want to lead us? And so last week, if you were here with us, one of Bill's seminary professors was here and he preached Psalm 67. And if you were here, like me, what you probably picked up on um, is that since English wasn't his first language, he spoke with an accent, right? And so I don't know about you, but I found myself having to pay a lot closer attention to try to understand what he was saying because of some of the ways he said it. So I couldn't really get, put my hand on what type of accent it was. It was a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but it was more difficult to, to understand. And so I was actively listening, trying to figure out what he was saying. On the surface, um, that felt like a barrier, right? Because it's like, well, it's more difficult to know what he's saying to us. But actually, I was challenged by it. I was encouraged by it. And here's why. Because it reminded me that this is how we should always listen to the word of God when it's preached. That we should always be actively listening, actively leaning in to hear what God is saying, paying close attention, trying to figure out what does this mean? What is God saying to us? Right, that through the pages of scripture, the God of the universe is speaking to me, speaking to you and I, and we should be leaning into what he has to say, not casually dropping in and out of the conversation because we can or because it's easy. Right, praise God for the way he's gifted Bill to communicate the word of God to us in such a way that it comes easy, but we should be leaning in together, listening to what God has to say to us. I don't think that means that we should, Bill should now speak with an accent, right, or force that or intentionally try to make it difficult for you to understand. What I am saying is this, it's easy for you and I to settle into our routines. Most of us rush in here on Sunday morning with our coffee, right? 
We go through the motions, we shake a few hands because we're told to, we sing some songs because we're told to, we sit and stand when we're supposed to, and we pay attention when it comes easy. And don't get me wrong, rhythms and routines in our life can be very good, but every now and again, I think it's good for us to shake out of that so that we can dial into the things that really matter. And to be honest, what could possibly matter more to us in this moment than listening to what the God of the universe has to say to us? to what God our Father has to say to us. And so Colossians chapter two, I wanna read two verses, verse six and seven for us, and I'm gonna ask that you stand up, okay? And, and, and don't get nervous. I'm not establishing a new normal for us, okay? Don't pull your phone out, Googling new churches, which church doesn't make me stand up, right? Let me read the scripture. Um, I just want us to lean in together to what God is gonna say. Colossians two, verse six and seven says this, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. All right, you can have a seat. So a little bit of background about this letter before we jump in. Colossians is unique because even though the Apostle Paul is the one who's writing this letter, he, he's actually writing it to a group of people who he has never even met. And the reason why is because, and you can pick up on this if you read through chapter one, in verse seven, Paul mentions a guy named Epaphras, okay? And so if we had more time, we could turn to Acts chapter 19, and what you would see there is that Paul spends three years ministering in a city named Ephesus, and this was one of his favorite churches, that he spent three years with them in Ephesus, preaching the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what happens along the way is at some point, this guy named Epaphras is visiting from Colossae, he's in Ephesus, and he hears Paul preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He hears Paul talking about the good news of the gospel, and then he responds in faith, praise God, and then he returns back to Colossae, and he starts telling people about Jesus, and this is how the Colossian church gets planted. So you have this brand new Christian telling people about Jesus, they're hearing the good news, they're giving their lives to follow Jesus, and now, uh, as a result, they're looking to Epaphras, because he's, he's the one who told them about him initially, they're looking to him to teach them how to do that, to teach them how to follow after him. And if you're, you're thinking that sounds like a recipe for disaster, then you'd be right. Because you have this brand new Christian trying to help these other brand new Christians follow Jesus. But it's not the blind leading the blind because even though they are new Christians, they have the Holy Spirit in them leading them and guiding them. Chapter one, verse six says that they heard and they understood the grace of God in truth. This means that the Colossian people, at least this church, they placed their faith in Jesus and it transformed their hearts and their minds in such a way that they have, the Bible says, a genuine love for the saints, that is the church. That they believed in Jesus in such a way that it shifted the way that they interact with the people around them, that it's transforming them from the inside out. It says not only that, not that just they had this initial change, but verse six goes on to say that from the day they heard the gospel, it has been bearing fruit and growing in them. So they're on this gradual process, this trajectory of becoming more and more and more like Jesus because of what the gospel is doing in their lives. That is awesome, right? How, how good is that, that God would be moving and working in Colossae all because Epaphras was in Ephesus when Paul preached the gospel. He hears it, he's faithful to go back home and to tell people about Jesus. So you have this group of people who have their whole world turned upside down. Everything that they thought was important in life, all of a sudden now, it takes a back seat because they've tasted something better. They've caught a glimpse of Jesus. 
and they give their lives to follow after him in the joy that he promises to bring. And as awesome as that is, what becomes clear in this letter, if you read through it, is that they need some help. And so Epaphras tracks down Paul and he tells him what's going on about all the good, all the great things that God is doing, and also about some stuff that's going not so well. And so Paul writes this letter, the Colossians, to instruct them. This is what the Christian life should look like. This is the point of Colossians. Paul says, this is how you follow Jesus. And really, if I think you wanna boil this letter down, Colossians 2, verse six and seven is really the primary thing that Paul wants to communicate. That these two verses that we just read are sort of the hinge point for the whole letter. That chapter one is Paul kind of laying a foundation for what he has said in verses six and seven, and then everything after that is just him clarifying what he said in verse six and seven. So for our time this time together this morning, I want us to dig into these two verses, to lean in together to what God might be saying to us. And really, if you wanna break it down, there's one command in these verses. One thing that Paul says, do this. If you wanna follow Jesus, this is where you put your energy. If you wanna follow Christ, this is how you spend your time. And it's at the end of verse six, right where he says, so walk in him, that's the command. That's the point of the Christian life. That's the point of Colossians. Again, subsequently, that's the point of what it means to be a Christian, that we would walk in Christ. And so my hope this morning is to answer two questions. One, what does that mean? What does it mean to walk in Christ? And then two, how can you and I, how can we know how we're doing in that? Because my guess is if you're here on Sunday morning, after Thanksgiving, you move some things around, maybe you rolled into town like me last night at 10.15, you unpack the, the car, you get the kids down the best you can, right? And then you're here Sunday morning, you wanna follow Jesus, so how do we know how we're doing it? Those are the questions I wanna answer. What does it mean to walk in Christ? How can we know how we're doing? So let's look at it again. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So we have one command in this passage, again, to walk in Christ, and then Paul clarifies what that means in a couple of ways, and then he's gonna, at the end, give us a sort of diagnostic test so that we can lay over our lives and know how we're doing at it. So first he says, walk in Christ as you received him. So this word received here in the original language is translated 30 times a different way. It's translated to take or to lead. So one of those examples is this, in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus is with his kind of inner circle, his closest followers. He's with Peter, James, and John, and the Bible says that he leads them up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. That word leads there is the same word receive, so he takes them up with him. He leads them, he receives them up onto the mountain, and it's there that Jesus wants to reveal to them who he really is, that he wants them to see with their own eyes the glory of the King of Kings, that he wants them to hear with their ears from the mouth of God that Jesus really is the Son of God. And what I want you to see in that is this idea of receive here, it's not just to, to get something that you didn't have before, right? It's to take to something, to associate ourselves with it in such a way that it changes you. It's the way we take medicine, that we, we take to it, we fully ingest it, we, we trust it to do what only it has the power to do in our lives. Paul says, walk in Christ as you received him, as you took to him, it's, it's, um, it, it's as, as you laid upon him all your hopes and dreams, gave him all your secrets, put upon him all your fears, all your past hurts, you received him, you joined yourself to him. But notice he doesn't just say you received Christ Jesus. What's he say? You received Christ Jesus the what? The Lord. This is key to understanding the book of Colossians. And honestly, it's key to understanding what it means to live as a Christian. Because a lot of people have 
claimed to receive Christ, but they haven't received him as Lord. The point is that Jesus is, is pressing here, or, or is similar to a point that Jesus presses this in, in Mark 8, where he, he says to his disciples, he has them with him, and he says, hey, who do people say that I am? What are people saying? What are the people around town? What are they saying that I am? And then they answer, right? Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Others say you're a prophet. And he goes, okay, that's fine. But who do you say that I am? Right, he presses there because it's important, because it matters who he is. It matters how we receive him. And Peter responds rightly. He says, you are the Christ. What he meant there is you are the Messiah. You are the the anointed one, the promised one, the son of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And Paul is saying to the Colossians, this is how you receive Jesus. You received him as the Christ. You received him as Lord. The point is the only way to receive Jesus is to take him for who he is, the king of kings, right? To position yourself under his lordship, to willingly step down off the throne of your life and to allow him alone to sit there, the only one who deserves that. This is the foundation that Paul is laying starting in chapter one. Again, I said everything he says in chapter one kind of leads up to uh, chapter two, verse six and seven. I wanna read this for us. If you have a Bible, you can turn. Chapter uh, one, verse 15. Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, by Jesus in heaven and on earth, everything that's visible, everything that's invisible, whether a throne or dominion or ruler or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, in Christ, all things hold together. Skip to verse 19. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Christ to reconcile to himself, to God, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul's point is this is who Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the one who all things were created by and all things were created for. Everything that you can see or hear or touch or taste or feel or even think of, it has not only been created by Jesus, it was created for him. This is who he is. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is king, the creator, the sustainer of all things. He holds things together with the words of his power. The one who Psalm 98 is talking about when it says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. And then verse seven and eight says this, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it, they're making a joyful noise to the Lord. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy. I love this. The picture here, the psalmist is saying, even the earth worships him. He's Lord. The sea, as it roars, as it goes crazy, as the tide comes in and out, as the waves move, they are worshiping God. The rivers, as they they hit the banks, they are clapping their hands for God because he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. This is who he is. And in verse 21, it goes in on us. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. It says we were alienated from God. It's a word that means to be shut off to be cut off from, and then he says, here's why, because we were hostile in mind, we were doing evil deeds. The idea here is that we are holistically opposed to the lordship of Christ, that in our actions we are opposed to him leading and guiding us, and in our thoughts and our minds, and even in the feelings of our heart, we are opposed to him leading us. Our minds and our actions are corrupt. We are separated from God with no hope of bridging the gap on our own. 
This is confusing, right? Because Paul is laying this, this foundation of Christology. This is who Jesus is. It's this beautiful, this poetic, this lofty language that's written to make the reader and the hearer's heart and mind soar at the thought of how beautiful and how powerful Jesus is. And then we get one verse on who we are, and then he dives right back into to Jesus. And this time, instead of it, who he is, it's what he's done for us. Look at verse 22, because this is crazy. He has now, Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is one of those verses that if we're leaning in, if we're listening intently to God and dialing into what he is saying, this should leave our mouths open in shock. But again, it's, it's, it's part of our routine. It's good news, yes, but we're used to it, right? We grow accustomed to it, and so we spend our lives going and looking for some other good news that's gonna provide for us what we ultimately think that Jesus can no longer provide for us. And the Bible just said that the one who spoke the entire universe into existence, the one who created everything and who everything was created for, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, he laid his life down for you. That's what the Bible just said, that he reconciled you, he brought you back in, he made peace for you by the blood of his cross, and chapter two goes on to say, if you have your Bible, look at verse 13 of chapter two, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, and here's how, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the best news in all the world that Jesus takes what's dead and he makes it alive. He looks at the laundry list of reasons why you and I do not deserve him. The insurmountable debt that is stacked against us, the crushing weight of our sin and our rebellion against the King of Kings, and he doesn't pretend it never existed or push it to the side or even tear it up. What's he do? He nails it to the cross. He cancels the record of debt that stands against us, and in that, he purchases for us the right to become children of God, to be reconciled to him. Paul says this is how we received him. We received him as dead men who've been made alive as enemies who've been reconciled, as aliens, as strangers who've been adopted into the family, we received him as Lord. And Paul says, just as you received him, you walk in him. The phrase walk in him, it just means to live. It just means as you're going, as you're living, as you're walking, right? Live in Christ the same way you received him. And here's the point of this. The life of the Christian is one of a continual coming to Christ. It is a, a daily journey of submitting ourselves to his lordship. It's not a one and done thing. It's not one time you heard the gospel and you believed in Jesus when you were six years old or when you were at youth camp or when you were in college or when you were 40 or whenever. It's not a one and done thing where you move on to bigger and better things. It is a pattern, a process of continually coming to Jesus, a battle to walk in him as we have received him, to position ourselves under his lordship. One of the translations for the word Lord here is the word umpire. I love that, right? That Paul's point to live in Christ and to take him as the umpire of our lives, where he is the one who sets the strike zone. He is the one who calls the shots. He is the one who says who's safe and out and not just when we agree with him. So we walk in him as we received him. 
And then Paul clarifies what he means by that, and he says three things here. It's sort of a mixed metaphor, look at it. So walk in him, verse seven, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. So it's sort of a mixed metaphor, and I wanna hit this quick because I wanna spend more time on the back half of this verse because I think it can help us answer the question, how are we doing at walking in Christ? But he says three things. He says we need to be rooted in him, be built up in him, and be established in the faith. And I say this is a mixed metaphor because he starts out with an agricultural illustration. He says, be rooted. And then he switches and he goes to kind of a construction illustration. He says, be built up and be established. And, and I think he does this because it's two different things that he's trying to communicate. So when he says, be rooted in him, what he means is be connected to Jesus in such a way that he is your primary source of energy. That he is your primary source of life and your primary source of vitality. It's very similar to what Jesus says in John 15 to his disciples, verse five, this should be on the screen, he says this, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So when Jesus says to abide, it's a word that means to remain to stay connected. It's not the same word, but it could be used synonymously with this idea of being rooted. It's to be connected to him, to not move from him, to draw from him your sense of confidence and your sense of worth. Again, your vitality for life. What it means is that we stay connected to Christ, that we root ourselves to him, that we plant ourselves into the soil of the gospel, the good news that says that I was alienated from God, that I was hostile in mind, that I was doing evil deeds, but the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has laid his life down for me that I have been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death and now I am presented to God the Father in Christ and he sees me how? Holy and blameless. This is what it means to stay connected to Jesus, to plant ourselves in the soil of the gospel and to never move from this. So when Paul says stay rooted in him, what he means is that that becomes our source of confidence and worth that we never move away from it, that we allow that truth, the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us to transform our life little by little, day by day, as we continually come to Christ. This means we need to create rhythms and patterns in our lives that draw us back to this reality every single moment of every day, every morning. So that at 5 a.m. when my baby's screaming, my first thought isn't, why isn't my wife going to get him? Because that's what happens, I promise you, as one of your pastors, when my baby is crying, my first thought isn't, I should serve my wife in this moment. My first thought is, why isn't she serving me in this moment, I promise you. And so in that space, I need something to draw me back to Jesus, something to remind me, oh yeah, my king has laid his life down for me, and so now the calling on my life is to lay my life down for the people around me, especially my wife and kids. I need something to draw me back to this, something to remind me when someone cuts me off in traffic, I need something to draw me back to Jesus. When you don't get that promotion that you thought you deserved, you need something to draw you back to Jesus. And when something even more tragic happens and it feels like the bottom has just fallen out of your life, you need something to draw you back to Jesus. And so we plant ourselves in the soil of the gospel and we bear fruit for the kingdom every minute of every day, rooted to Jesus, connected to him as our source of life. And so walking in Christ means we're rooted, but it also means that we are built up and established. So this is different than rooted. This, is, this phrase built up, it could also mean to be built on. So it's this idea of having a solid foundation. I think what Paul means here, what he has in mind is what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 7. He tells them a story and he says, hey, you can, 
your life can be like a man who builds a house in two ways. You can either build it on the rock or you can build it on sand. And then he says, hey, the rains are gonna come and the winds are gonna blow and flooding is going to happen. And so you can be one of two ways. You can either be the one who's built on the sand and when the rain come and the floods come and the winds blow, that, that, the great is gonna be the fall of that house. Or you can build on the rock and it's not going anywhere. And Jesus' point to his disciples, and we should be encouraged by this, is life is hard. That's the whole point of the story, that life is hard and you need to make sure you're not building on the sand. That building on something, that you're, you're drawing your sense of worth or you're building your life on something that, that ultimately you think can hold the weight of your life, but when things get hard, it's gonna wash away. This is defining yourself by your career, defining yourself by how good you are at sports or whatever it might be. It's sand. Paul says be rooted and be built up, be established in the faith. Again, the life of the Christian is a pattern of continually coming to Christ, positioning ourselves under his lordship and allowing him to redefine our story. It means we never move away from the gospel. We plant ourselves in the soil of Christ and we live out our days there. And so how can we know? how we're doing in this, what can we use as a diagnostic to see if we're growing, if we're getting better at doing this? Again, because these, those moments happen in us that, that draw us away and go, how could someone do that to me? And we need to be brought back to Jesus in those moments. This is what I think the last part of verse seven is, where Paul says, abounding in thanksgiving. Another way to translate this is, is a phrase that, that is overflowing with gratitude. The point is, Deep roots of faith in Christ will always evidence themselves with a heart of gratitude. That thanksgiving is a visible response to the grace of God in our lives. And when I say thanksgiving, I don't mean the fourth Sunday in November. Right, thanksgiving is a visible response to the grace of God in our lives. I'm talking about a posture of heart and a way of life. A helpful way to think about this is it's the opposite of entitled. It's the opposite of the world owes me something. It is dialed into this reality that the king of kings has laid his life down for me and that changes everything about me. And so now, like the Colossians, I can have a genuine love for the people around me because I don't think that they owe me something. This quote will be on the screen. It's from Pastor Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City. He says this, it's one thing to be grateful. It's another thing altogether to give thanks. Gratitude is what you feel and thanksgiving is what you do. I think what Paul is getting at here in Colossians 2, 6 and 7 is that when we truly understand the grace of God to us in Jesus, it will produce in us both of these things. A, a heart that is grateful and a body and a mind that lives out a life of thanksgiving to God that serves the people around us because our God has given us more than we could ever imagine in Christ Jesus that is willing to get out of the bed at 5 a.m. when I did it last time, but is putting that away because they're going, no, this is what God's called me to. And not begrudgingly, but, but in a way that overflows with gratitude, in a way that abounds in thanksgiving. This is why this is such a good diagnostic for us, to assess whether or not we're walking in Christ. So if you want to know how well you're walking in Christ, how well you're living in the gospel, you can ask yourself this simple question, does my life overflow with gratitude? It's a great tool for you, for me. Let me, let me clarify something real quick. If the answer is no, my life doesn't overflow with gratitude, I'm not saying you're not a Christian. Now that is possible. 
It is possible for you to be in this room, to come to church on a Sunday morning and not be a Christian because being here doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is putting your faith in who Jesus is and what he's done. Right, that he's the king of kings, that he's the Lord of lords. That's what makes you a Christian. It's possible for you to be here and not be a Christian, but answering no to that question doesn't mean you're not. Because verse six, if we follow it, just says that there's a way to receive Christ without actually walking in him. But what comes clear here is that if you're walking in him, you will abound in thanksgiving. And if I'm honest, this is what drew me to preach this passage of scripture this morning, because as I look around at the Christians around me, and, and as if I'm honest, if I look at my own life, it seems that we're missing something. There's a disconnect somewhere. Like from what I can tell, we are far more likely to grumble than we are to be grateful. Far more likely to be cynical than we are to celebrate the goodness of God in our lives. And this one will hit home. Maybe we're far more likely to be dialed into what God hasn't given us than what he has. All the things we don't have rather than what we do have. And maybe it's just me, man, but, but despite my best efforts to plant myself in the soil of the gospel, my natural drift is not towards selflessness and gratitude. My natural drift is toward a holistic self-absorption. And if I'm not careful, well, what will happen is I begin to view God and the people around me as if they owe me something, and without even realizing it, I kind of squeak my way back into the throne of my life where I am the one who calls the shots. Paul says this, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. These days, Thanksgiving is the forgotten holiday, right? We get all geeked up about Halloween because that's the start of the holiday season. And then we're going to jump straight to Christmas. But man, I'm so thankful for the last week in November, every single week, because it is a gift of grace from God to us to have a few days off of work where we get to ask ourselves the question, do I abound in Thanksgiving? Does my life overflow with gratitude? Am I walking in Christ? Am I resting in who he says that I am? Or am I working to earn, striving to earn something outside of that? Striving to earn something or to get something in my life that ultimately I don't believe he can provide for me. I mean, I think this is something that we need to pay attention to. That if we're leaning into what God is saying to us this morning, we need to realize this, that to the degree that we lack the capacity for gratitude in our lives, it is to that degree that we fail to understand the depth of what God has accomplished for us in Christ. That if we lack the ability to overflow, to abound in thanksgiving, then we lack the ability to dial into all that has been accomplished for us in Jesus, that we were dead and now we're alive. We can't afford to pretend like this isn't going on in our life. And what's at stake is our joy, it's our contentment. I think it's probably fair to say that we all have some room to grow in this. So here's how I wanna help us. Chapter three, verse 15 through 17, really Paul starts to expand on this idea of thanksgiving and gratitude in the life of the Christian. Let me read this for us. It'll be on the screen. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Three times in as many verses, Paul encourages the Colossians towards thanksgiving and to gratitude. 
And if you follow it, you can see it's kind of an inside out sort of pattern where thankfulness starts with hearts of gratitude and it works its way into everything we do. Verse 15, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. I think that verse, those words have the power to absolutely transform your life and to transform our church. Now Paul makes a connection between thanksgiving and an internal peace in our hearts which means that all the fear and all the worry and all the anxiety that you feel today can be traced back to a lack of gratitude. And ultimately what that is, is a lack of trust in the Lordship of Christ, a lack of trust that God can or will provide what we need. And if the Bible is right, and I believe that it is, the way for us to overcome our anxieties and our fear isn't to obsess about all the ways that we can't control things in our lives, but rather we would turn our attention to the one who is in control. If we wanna overcome our fear, we need to grow in our capacity to trust the goodness of God to us in Christ. We need to cultivate hearts of thanksgiving. It means this, instead of being an expert in your life in all the ways that your life didn't turn out the way you hoped, you work to become an expert in the goodness of God toward you. That you really dial into the things that God has given you, the things that God has done and is doing in your life. And again, what's at stake is our joy. It's what Paul says here, the peace of Christ would rule in our hearts as we get down off the throne and let him be there. Let him be Lord, let him rule, let him call the shots. It goes better for you if you do. God isn't trying to take anything from you. He's trying to invite you into a life of thanksgiving. Like when you read that abound in thanksgiving, what would it be like if if that were true about us? If our life, we actually were grateful for where we are today and didn't have one ounce of us where I wish my life went this way. I wish I had that, I wish I would've married that person instead or my kids would be this way or my job was this or I had it like him or whatever. What if we abound in thanksgiving? What if we overflowed with gratitude? How might our church be different, this neighborhood be different, this city be different if we rooted ourselves into the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way that that were true about us? Again, what's at stake here is our joy. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. I love this verse. Paul says, Let the words of Christ dwell in us richly. That means let them live in you. Let them be alive in you. What he's saying here is there's a direct connection between your heart of gratitude and how much time you're spending in the word of God. I think that means two things for us. The first one, you should know what I'm about to say. I think it means we should be reading our Bibles more. Right? I think it means we should be reading our Bibles more and I'm not trying to be legalistic or create a list of rules for you. I just can't think of another way for the word of Christ to dwell in you, for it to be alive in you if you're not reading it. I just can't. And I said this a couple weeks ago uh, in our college gathering that, that I, f- I don't care if this is legalistic because I've been following Jesus now for a little bit over 10 years and I can promise you that there has been a direct correlation in my life to how consistently I've been reading the word of God and my posture of contentment and joy in my life. That if, if I follow my life, there's a direct connection that it correlates together. And I'm not saying that if you read your Bible every day, your life's gonna go the way you want it to. What I'm saying is that if you read your Bible every day, the words of Christ will dwell inside of you that it will become fuel for you in your battle to position yourself under his lordship and to plant yourself in the soil of the gospel. And it may not feel like much at first, but little by little, you will start to see yourself dialing into the goodness of God instead of all the things that you don't have in life. You're reading the word of God. 
And don't feel shame in there. Here's, here's, here's how that helps you. If you're not reading your Bible at all, except for when we open it here on Sunday morning, do it one time a week. That's your goal. Before next Sunday, you read the Bible once. If you're doing it once, do it two or three times. If you're doing it two or three times, read it every day. If you're reading it every day, add it again. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. So we need to read our Bibles. The second thing is this. We need to realize there's a community component to this as well. Paul says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. This means that we are encouraging one another with the word of God. So not only should we be pursuing a life where the words of Christ are alive in us, but we should be pursuing relationships where the words of Christ are alive in other people and we are helping them grow in that. Inherently in verse 16, there's this idea that we're in this together, that if we want hearts of gratitude, if we want contentment and we want joy in Christ, then we need to be helping each other along the way. Which means, yes, the life of the Christian, the Christian life is one of a continually coming to Christ, but it is not every man for himself. That we're in this together, that God has called us in this. This is why we gather on Sundays. This is why we do community groups, because God has called us to this together. And then what Paul says next is actually should be pretty surprising to us. He says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The point here is simple that one of the ways that we let the words of Christ dwell in us is to make it a point to sing. That we don't just do this because we need something else to do besides listening to someone preach, but we should make it a point to sing. There are, this isn't just Paul and Colossians, there's over 50 direct commands in the Bible to the people of God to sing. And this isn't because God needs to hear from us how great he is, it's because we need to hear from us how great he is that we need to encourage one another in the singing and the proclamation of the truth of God to melody, to song of how great our God is. Because as we sing, something powerful happens. God stirs our hearts together in the truth. And as he does that, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he begins to get our feet off the sand and put it back on the rock as we sing together, proclaim together the words of God. So I have one more point in verse 17, but the Bible says sing, so we need to sing. So again, just an opportunity to shake us out of the rhythm because you're thinking right now, hey, we can't stand and sing until he prays, but we're gonna sing now. We're gonna respond to God and the truth. Proclaim to one another how good our God is. Let's do that together. You can say, standing, I don't have long. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul's intention here in that is that this would be a comprehensive statement. He says, whatever you do, in word and deed, that's everything you say, everything you think, everything you do, do it in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's hard, isn't it? I don't have to think long to come up with a big old list of things that I'm not thankful for in my life. What Paul's doing here is he's drawing us back to this reality that we were once dead and we've been made alive. And verse 17 is an invitation to come to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying everything you do, do it in the name. This is an invitation to the God of the universe to come in Jesus, to come holy and blameless, to come forgiven, to come not as a stranger, but as a child. God's inviting us to here. He's not saying, you better be thankful. He's saying, this is the way to a life of contentment and joy. Not, why don't you appreciate what Jesus has done for you, but come this way. Cultivate a heart and a life of gratitude. It won't be easy, but it's possible in Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful this morning 
but we confess that we are not as thankful as we should be. And so would you help us, as we started out this morning, asking for you to help us, would you help us by the power of the Holy Spirit, God? We want things other than you in order to be satisfied. Would you reveal to us Jesus as most glorious and most beautiful, that we would run with all we have to him, that we would plant ourselves in the soil of the gospel, and we wouldn't move one way. Help us, God, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus.